0: Welcome to Episode 122 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by uh, our guest for the podcast, Fred Kaplan, uh, uh, the War Stories columnist for Slate, uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and... Uh, the author uh, of a very good book on cyber uh, uh, issues, uh, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Uh, Fred, welcome. Thank you. Uh, also on our panel today, uh, Maury Schenk, uh, uh from our London office uh, and Michael Vadis from our New York office. I'm Stuart Baker from our Washington office. Uh, uh, so the big news in, uh, uh cyber as in practically every other, uh, field of uh, endeavor is, uh, the UK's Brexit vote. Uh, I, and, uh, I think, um, I, 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 owe this to, uh, this line to, uh, Michael Vattis who said that uh, the U.K. is going to discover the pottery br- barn rule, which is you, Brexit, you own it. Uh, um, eh, eh, but uh, let me let me ask Maury, uh, you've been living Brexit now for the last uh, week or so. Uh, uh, what do you think it means for companies that are going to have to deal with uh, uh, data protection and cybersecurity and cyber regulation in a world where the Brits are leaving the E.U.?
1: Uh, I have been living at it, Stewart it's all that anybody's talking about here um, it's very hard to say what it means right now I, I would say first nothing has changed now and it looks like it'll be at least two and a half years or or close to two and a half years till there's any legal changes and quite possibly longer but there's a lot of uncertainty and that uncertainty is doing a lot of damage to the UK economy. Which, uh, it, well, it's too soon to tell, but certainly asset values and the uh, pound sterling are dropping. Um, our our lead industries here are financial services and property, and those both depend upon confidence and people wanting to come here. So it's frustrating. Um, it, you know, in terms of specific regulation, I suspect that it it won't change hugely, and that there will be some kind of accommodation with the EU, but there is this uncertainty.
0: So the accommodation, I, I, first, I see lots of reasons for the Brits to feel they have to make accommodations with the EU, and almost none for the EU to feel they have an obligation to make accommodations to the Brits. It, it, it's... it's uh, bad for the EU for people to be able to leave on good terms. And so, uh, making an example of the UK, um, is both good politics and deeply satisfying for, uh, Brussels bureaucrats who've been kind of pissed off at the, uh, Brits and their approach to, uh, uh Brussels ever since they showed up on the scene. Um, do you, do you see that? That, that uh, this is a situation where the offer that the U.K. is going to get is basically, well, how about this? You take all our rules, but you don't get a vote in what the rules are, uh, unlike uh, today. Um, uh, and you're lucky we don't make you take rules that are especially hostile to you um, as a way of teaching others a lesson. Well,
1: I think it's entirely possible that will be the offer. That's the deal Norway has, plus they pay money into the E.U. So uh, I... I think the EU will be tough to create a disincentive on others to leave. I would say two reasons why they will negotiate. Uh, One is that the UK is the second biggest economy in the EU after Germany and actually buys more European products than it sells to Europe, is my understanding. So, you know, from a size of market perspective, keeping it part of the free trade zone is significant. The second, and this is my personal theory, and some others are saying it already, is I don't think we'll actually leave. I think that offer that you're describing that will finally be on the table will be so bad that we won't actually leave. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and and I think the Europeans will see that they'll play tough, and that's where we'll end up after a period of uncertainty that's done lots of damage.
0: And that could be, and and then maybe they they make an offer slightly better than the offer that they gave Cameron uh, uh, to stay in and uh, uh, leave it at that uh, uh, and, and, and say, why don't you have another referendum?
1: I, I think they might give the same offer or worse to Cameron and say, have another referendum. I mean, look what happened with, I don't know if you followed what happened with Greece and the European Central Bank, but they got kind of a bad offer that they rejected. Then they got a worse offer. Um, which the prime minister trumpeted as a victory, and they held a referendum and approved it. So something like that could happen here. So in terms when, of – When the economy looks bad enough, which it may well be, I think something like that could happen here as well.
0: So I've been asking myself what leverage uh, the Brits have. They certainly could say <clears throat> we're going to stay in for a while and we're going to veto everything. Uh, If it requires a qualified majority, count us out. We're voting against it. If you're going to play this game, so will we. Uh, And so you can spend the next three years making no progress at all on the agenda that you want to achieve. Uh, I'm not sure that's a a, a very impressive uh, weapon, but it's certainly available to them.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that particular one, but there's clearly desire in Europe to get this process going because they, the Europeans fear a protracted negotiation. I thought it was interesting that the UK stock market was um, down on Friday by about 3%, but the French I think was down by 6 or 7% and the Spanish down by 12% because there's Great uncertainty in Europe around this. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So there that, is some leverage around plays like that.
0: Or, or leverage about saying, yes, yes, we uh, uh, <clears throat> we have a, a an internal uh, obligation to send you our notice, which will trigger the two-year uh, process, but we haven't sent it yet. Why don't you just sit there on that powder keg for as long as it takes for your markets to tank and for people to wonder whether other people will leave? and uh you know we will negotiate with you in advance about what might be in that uh, notice uh, uh but we aren't sending it yet uh we're going to send it when it will hurt you the most uh, so that is another modest uh, uh weapon that they have um well here's my favorite i uh, you know i i have uh, uh started this uh, uh hypocrisy prize to try to get uh, uh cases to be filed against uh, data exports to Uh, China to Russia to Algeria to Saudi Arabia countries that that no one thinks uh, live up to the exalted standards of the European Union Um, eh, but the EU has never bothered to uh, attack data exports to those countries only to the United States Uh, and I thought it would be fun to to make them live up to their principles now the UK faces the possibility that they too will be uh, uh, on the receiving end of adequacy determinations, uh, but they aren't yet. So it would be very much in their interest to uh, initiate cases at the data protection privacy office level against all of those countries uh and then refer them to the European Court of Justice and let let it struggle with uh, uh the question of how aggressively to uh uh apply their universal principles uh, on the theory that nothing bad happens to the UK as a result of that and potentially it will uh, uh lead to a dose of realism on the uh, uh EU side
1: it's possible it's possible it's in my view it's Things like that are likely to become interesting in about four to five years, once all this mess is sorted out and people start thinking about the details. But um, I, you know, I don't know whether uh, without without uh, pouring too much cold water on a clever idea. I think that there, hopefully, cooler heads will prevail in not trying to pick small battles until the bigger picture becomes somewhat clear.
0: In terms of the of, of data protection. Broadly, though, the the prospect that they will be subject, if they get out, to an analysis based on adequacy Means that, um, as a practical matter, the, the UK is going to end up with the GDPR pretty much as written, uh, uh, even if it doesn't take effect while the UK is uh, is in. Um, which probably means that for companies that are trying to plan for their data protection uh, um, uh, programs, uh, they don't need to spend too much time wondering whether the UK rules will be much different. Uh, a, or whether the UK is somehow going to be a place where you can't store data. Yeah, I
1: think that's right. I mean, I I can't imagine there being an exit deal for the UK that doesn't have some kind of adequacy determination for de- data protection, particularly because we've been implementing EU law right along and the EU the UK regulator, the Information Commissioner's Office is Really, if not the most, one of the most practical and business-oriented data protection authorities in Europe. So I think this will ma- remain a pretty good place to um, to house data, to house European um, online businesses. Maybe even better than than the rest of the EU, even if the UK does exit.
0: All right. Well, that, that's that's a, a one glimmer of hope in uh, in Brexit. Uh, anything else you want to add? I know you've got a hop.
1: I, I just say that this isn't about cyber law, but there's a lot of uh, division here. Same as um, is happening in the United States, and I, I hope some cooler heads prevail and avoid the worst damage from what seems to me a pretty dumb vote. So um, I voted to remain, but I'm going to try to mend bridges. Um, Going
0: forward yeah look okay, the, the the problem is uh, uh, and it 's true of elites in the, uh, this country as well um, by saying, "But for us, you will be plunged into the abyss leads to the people who say that uh, taking advantage and saying you know and that that means we all get rich you don't get so rich uh, but after all it 's either us or the abyss uh, and uh, um the the damage that was done by the financial crisis in a sense that uh, uh, that dynamic, you know, give us boatloads of money or you'll end up in the abyss, uh, uh, and, and and even if we succeed, you'll just be poor, um, it has been obvious to a lot of uh, uh, voters in the U.S. and the U.K., and that, that damage, uh, I think uh, – uh, what we're seeing here is delayed damage from 2008-2009, uh, and an uh, unwillingness to take advice from people who maybe quite properly are saying uh, if you don't listen to us you'll end up in the abyss and at some point people say you know uh, you're getting so rich and I'm getting so poor as a result of this maybe I'll take the abyss sort of the uh, Greek the Greek uh, uh, response
1: I agree entirely when we start our global geopolitics podcast this should be our first topic
0: <laughs> okay I, I am reproved that's enough uh, uh, general philosophizing thanks uh, Maury for stretching your schedule to join us uh, Okay, have a good day. All right. I uh, and uh, uh Michael uh, in in other news uh um a couple of things have happened. Uh, DHS, kind of as predicted, has produced a uh, uh, set of final procedures for uh, cybersecurity threat uh, information sharing uh, that I, as far as I could see, are pretty much, uh, uh, if anything, very modest tweaks of the drafts that we saw a few months ago. Uh, um, a- and so we now have uh, surprisingly flexible and helpful uh, sharing rules that don't impose much of a uh, privacy tax on the processing of the threat information, uh, where the government, you know, acknowledges that of course IP addresses might, might be personal, but they are clearly Threat information uh if you're being attacked from a particular IP address so send it uh, don't worry about the privacy implications of uh sending that information to other uh members of the group uh um, did you see anything uh, uh, different uh, in in those DHS rules
2: No i had the same read that they're they're basically the same as the interim rules
0: well, <laughs> you know, uh, we've 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 mocked the um, uh, Western District of Washington uh, uh, judge who uh, decided to uh, uh, bump off uh, uh, cases for uh, uh, child porn uh, prosecutions because the FBI had uh, used Rule Forty-One and their uh, network investigative tool, i.e. Their hacking tool uh, to get access to a bunch of people who went to a uh, child porn site that the FBI was running I and the judge in western District of washington didn 't even write an opinion uh, uh, but now somebody on the other side of the issue, a court uh, that uh, upheld uh, the uh, prosecution has done, done something that I guess i even i uh I'm puzzled by uh uh this is the decision that said uh, uh it upheld the, uh, the the use of the uh, the hacking tool on a number of grounds and the most extreme was well you don't really have a, a right of uh, an expectation of privacy in your computer cuz uh, hackers could get in
2: that's right. Um, you know, the judge went through all of the typical arguments that have been raised in these uh, cases challenging the use of the, uh, the so-called network investigative technique or, or NIT. Um, and he rejected all, all of them, uh, you know, setting up a split with the other courts that have found various problems, either uh, lack of jurisdiction by the issuing magistrate or uh, lack of necessary particularity in the in the warrant. And he rejected all those, but then at the end he felt compelled to engage in, well, I guess, what is what is dictum, but still, it's just striking. He, he said, you know, all these things aside, um, no warrant was needed in the first place because uh, this didn't constitute a search, and it didn't constitute a search because users have no reasonable expectation of privacy in their home computers. Uh, because we all know that hackers are out there they're everywhere uh, and there's really no way to keep them out um, uh, that's really not much of an exaggeration of, of, of his opinion it's it's striking you know I didn't have a chance to go and look at the government's briefs in this case um, but I'm, I'm curious as to whether the government really advanced this argument i I guess I have to believe they they must have to some extent um, but I can't believe that the that main justice would actually uh, agree with this position. I'd be shocked if, if they did. Um, but to to conclude that people have no expectation of privacy in their computers because of the risk of hacking is, is really uh, a striking thing. So we'll see if this gets picked up by other courts. I, I tend to doubt it, but... Um, you never
0: know. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's it's pretty hard to square with the, all the laws we have that say that it's illegal to hack a, a phone if it's Ill- or, or a computer. If it's illegal, you would have thought that you had an expectation of privacy, uh um even if it was often violated by the private sector. But can you imagine let's let's imagine that uh, uh you uh, announced to the world that your your home computer login um, uh, uh, password was password um, obviously people are going to log on and and see your information does does that that fact i mean in theory it's still a violation of law to do that uh, uh but you surely don't have much of an expectation of privacy at that point do you
2: yeah i wouldn't think so i mean i, I guess in that hypothetical you also may not have a subjective expectation of privacy since you you've told the world uh, how to get in um but the, the, there is an interesting issue here, which is that, um, you know, to the extent to which the third-party doctrine uh, has much force when it comes to uh, electronic communications and, and digital devices, um, because to some extent everything we do on the Internet is disclosed to some third party, and yet we still feel like we, we retain a reasonable expectation of privacy in those things. This particular issue didn't involve disclosure to a third party, but it's but it's sort of a, a variant of it in the in the sense that the the judge is basically saying, well, hackers are a third party, and and anything you do on your on your home laptop or your home desktop is available to to hackers. Yeah, not The government has access. It's it's you know there's there's a lot of. Um, uh, there's weakness to the third-party doctrine um, because it goes too far. It goes farther if you take it to its logical extreme. It goes farther than any of us, even you, I think, would feel comfortable with.
0: I, I am. I actually. I. I disagree with you. I think it's a very good judicial rule because otherwise the judges are going to have to decide which things they think are creepy this week. Uh, uh, but as a statutory matter i completely agree with you we ought to have statutes that reflect uh the things that we really think are too creepy uh to allow uh, um, uh, but the uh, sending the judges out there with the, this notion of just deciding which things are creepy and which things are not uh where the third party doctrine uh, uh, should apply and where it shouldn't is is wrong the third party doctrine is a great rule for uh uh, for courts, uh, and if we don't like the results, we ought to go to Congress uh, uh, and get new rules written in Congress. All right. Uh, I think the podcast wouldn't be complete if we didn't uh, uh, spend a little time on the, the FTC's uh, latest uh, decisions. Uh, they got a million-dollar settlement out of uh, a mobile advertising company, uh, uh, which apparently tracked a whole bunch of people, including uh kids under 13 uh without uh, much in the way of disclosure uh, is 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 there anything uh novel in the uh, the FTC's uh, settlement in this case
2: There isn't except that this it, it would have been actually a 4 million dollar civil penalty but it was reduced due to the financial condition of the company and 4 million dollars would have been I I believe the largest uh penalty issued under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act which which provides for significant statutory fines in the case of uh, violations of the of the Act. Um, so I think this what's what's interesting here is that that this does show the Commission's willingness to use COPPA uh, uh, to go after companies when when it's applicable. Um, but but the the facts here were pretty egregious in terms of uh, the at least as relayed by the related by the FTC uh, in terms of collecting location information. Uh, without adequately disclosing in fact saying things inconsistent with the actual practices of of inmobi the the um, advertising company
0: so it's a classic uh, FTC case where there was lying uh, a, as well as uh, behavior that uh, should get the uh, the company into the newspaper.
2: yeah according, again, according to the the complaint um, and the, the company settled, but as usual no uh, no admission of of, of guilt.
0: All right. Now let's uh, uh turn to uh Fred Kaplan and his new book Dark Territory. Uh, uh Fred, I I love this book uh partly cuz I felt like I well, knew thanks. Know everybody in the book, uh, even <laughs> Willis Ware, uh, uh, whom I cross. Oh, you're one with.
3: of the few. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, um, he goes back in cyber farther than I do, but uh, he was head of a privacy and security working group or advisory committee mm-hmm. when when we did the uh, Clipper chip. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. I, I, You know, they, you you talked at one point, I think, with uh, Ben Wittes about this and talked about Mm -hmm. the theme of the book is kind of Groundhog Day. Uh, Everybody uh, gradually, uh, sort of uh, a a wave passing over the U.S. government in which they realize just how many cool things they can use uh, cyber attacks for. And Then a kind of long withdrawing, ebbing roar as they realize just how many cool things other people can do to us that won't feel so cool when it happens. Uh, um, And then an effort to respond to that uh, uh, by doing something about cybersecurity. Is that is that a fair assessment of what the book, uh, um, the theme of the book?
3: Well, that's certainly that's that's certainly one pattern of waves that that goes through. You mentioned Willis Ware. He I mean, this goes back to the dawn of the Internet. In, in 1967, as the ARPANET was about to roll out, uh, there was this guy, as you mentioned, Willis Ware. He was the head of the computer science department at the RAND Corporation. He, he'd worked with von Neumann on the first computers at Princeton. And he was on the scientific advisory board of the National Security a- Agency. He wrote a paper. It was secret at the time, but it's been declassified since. You can look it up. And basically, he said the, the problem with putting information on a network is that you create, uh, in other words, a network being uh, access, online access from uh, multiple unsecured locations, is that you create inherent vulnerabilities. You're not going to be able to keep secrets anymore. And when I was doing my research, I interviewed a man who was running the ARPANET program, supervising it. And I said, what did you, did you know about the Willis Ware paper? And he said, yeah, sure, I knew Willis. And I said, what'd you think? And he said, well, I took it to my team and they read it and they said, oh God, don't, don't saddle us with a security requirement. I mean, look how hard it has been just to do what we've done. Let's take this one step at a time. What you're asking, it's like asking the, 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 the Wright brothers to make sure that the first plane can carry 20 passengers for 50 miles. And, and look, besides the Russians, it'll be decades before they can do this. And it's true, it took two and a half, three decades, by which time whole systems and networks had grown up with no provision for security, whatever. Uh, and so I see this as sort of the a bitten digital by the, the kind of a bitten apple in the digital garden of eden yeah this the, the problems that we know about today were embedded uh, in the original plan, and uh, the, the seeds have have since sprouted in, in, in many dimensions and directions
0: it, it's yes it's it's the uh, uh, poisonous fruit of a poison tree right? uh, yeah although I, 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 I have to have to say. Uh, that was just excuse 1 for why uh, people didn't want to do security it was really just too hard as as witness you know the fact that we we treat it seriously now and it's still too hard uh, i'm not sure it is possible well but to-
3: you know if i think you're right but the whole thing was too hard
0: uh
3: and and you may be right also if, if if it's from the very beginning you were programming in security provisions there probably eventually would have been objections that this is slowing things down. It's making our technology less competitive. If we get rid of these, of these firewalls and, and gateways, uh, it'll be much faster. And, and you know, it, look, it was only about 25 years ago that, uh, a, a bunch of critical infrastructure companies, you know, banks and finance, u- utilities, uh, Power grids, that sort of thing. They decided, oh, you know, let's hook everything we have up to the internet. It'll make things much more efficient, much faster, more, you know, not as much labor cost. Uh, and they did this without even being aware that they were creating these, uh, these pits of, of vulnerability. These, uh, and, and, you know, they, they were even warned a little bit at the time, but they didn't take it terribly seriously and, and, um, yeah, because it, it was just much too tempting uh, not to put all these uh, security provisions in place.
0: Right, and so they didn't expect to pay the to pay a big price, uh, um, mm-hmm. and, and for a long time didn't. And now the price keeps getting higher, even though the convenience and uh, ec- economic efficiencies are not growing quite as as uh, quickly. Uh, I, so I, I don't want to leave the impression that this is a Policy book, there are certainly a lot of policy themes, but it's great stories. Uh, and uh, especially about uh, directors of NSA, you must have gotten uh, practically all of the living directors to talk to you. Uh,
3: six of the eight. I, I interviewed uh, more than a hundred people from all kinds of levels of, you know, all throughout, uh, including cabinet secretaries, undersecretaries, mid-level officials, technical people in the bowels of of various bureaucracies, uh, as well as people in the NSA, including, as I said, six directors. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are some people, one problem with this whole field, and it really has been an impediment, is that it has been so completely secret. Nobody has been able to think about this issue strategically because it has been so classified that most people with a strategic bent don't have enough information even to think uh, seriously about it. I, I think there are some people now who are thinking, well, uh, at least the basic stuff n- needs to get out there. And in the process, I, now I, I should say, uh, I mean, there is a lot of stuff in this book that is technically still classified um, at the same time. There were a couple of things that I learned or pieced together and got confirmed that um, that I decided not to put in the book. I mean, I think this book, my 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 object was to explain the thinking that went into the policies, but I think it's also rather critical of them. And yet, at the same time, I you know, I, I'm I'm not of the bent. I my I don't see my job as um, as you know sabotaging ongoing operations
0: yeah no so, i i i, you know, I, I did take
3: I, some care in this i
0: i, I agree there were there were some things in here that i had not seen before uh right, um that probably had yeah so uh let me let me ask about that i was fascinated by the fact that uh uh the saudi aramco attack which was widely attributed to Iran and properly so uh um, uh, where large chunks of Saudi Aramco's uh, infrastructure uh, were bricked by uh, the Shamoon mm-hmm. virus, uh, had been preceded three months earlier by an attack on the National Iranian Oil Company that bricked boatloads of their computers, uh, um, which, right. which kind of puts a different spin on what the Iranians did mm-hmm. to Saudi Aramco.
3: That's right. I mean, it was partly that and all. some people had... Seen it before as a response to uh, Stuxnet, and it might have been, but yeah, you're right. It was much more directly an attack on, on the Iranian oil minister. And, and you know, these kinds of attacks, and and sometimes they're not even attacks; they're they're acts of espionage with with a little bit of an attack thrown in. Uh, they go on a lot. We do it to other places. They do it to us. Um, you know, I remember when when the big uh, OPM scandal happened, when it uh-huh. turned out that the Chinese had hacked into millions of personnel records, federal federal workers. There was a hearing uh, where a congressman, where General James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, was the witness, and some congressman asked him about this attack, and he said, "Well, I don't know if I would." refer to this as an attack, it's actually more an act of espionage similar to to acts of espionage that, that we carry out as well. I mean, one reason why it will be very difficult uh, if there ever is an opportunity to negotiate limits on the use of these things is... Um, is that we do a lot of it, too. Now, we don't steal industrial secrets from China or Russia. We don't need to. Uh, you know, we're way ahead of them. We don't steal money from banks like North Korea does. But, you know, we, we do hack into their military systems. We do hack into their critical infrastructure, just uh, like they hack into our critical infrastructure. And, you know, this is where things get kind of dangerous. I mean... Uh, you know, you could say, okay, I need to hack into their systems so that I can see whether they're about to hack into our systems. I mean, in that sense, it's sort of like having a spy in a a foreign government agency. This is a, a digital spy in their networks. But that is only one push button away from actually launching an attack on those networks. It would be as if the spy were also a saboteur with a mini nuke in his backpack. Uh, and if these intruders are detected, there is no way to know whether, oh well, that's just a spy looking around because it could also turn into an attack. It's the same technology. Sure. It's the same personnel. It's the same skill sets. It, it's, it's the same operative, so to speak. And, and you know, what this means is that if there were uh, a looming war between, say, the U.S. and China over, I don't know, some crisis in the South China Sea or something, and each side is inside the other's network, there might be a positive incentive for one side to launch an attack on the other's network's
0: Oh, and no, it's, it's enormous. Yeah, of course it's enormous. Yeah. There's an, and this is this is the, one of the strategic points that, that, that you raised that I certainly mm-hmm. have been worrying about. There is an enormous first-strike advantage, and we haven't really fully grasped how big that first-strike advantage is, is yeah, because I we mean, don't I'll like to talk about Yeah,
3: i give you an example. Our, our military is so tied in with, with networks. Uh, there are two facts, very quickly. One is in the book, and one I've learned since So. This is like a DVD bonus reel. (laughs) But one is, every time there's been a war game where a red team is assigned the task of hacking into the command control network of the blue team, the red team always gets in. They always get in. That's in the book. The second is that the military is starting to do something about this. For example, the Navy is now teaching its officers on ship how to use a sextant again to navigate by the stars because they figure, they assume that in the event of a war the data link with the GPS satellites is going to be hacked and disabled, at least for some period of time and it would be useful for the commanders of that ship to know where they are, right?
0: Uh, this so is, there this, are
3: this, things this, like this, that happening.
0: This is very encouraging because uh, in the event of a, a true cyber crisis, I will be fully employable because not only can I touch type, I know how to use a manual carriage return.
3: Okay, but do you know how to use a slide rule? Uh,
0: really you know, clear. I once knew how. I could probably figure that out, but I'd have to go to the internet to, to, <laughs> to, to, to figure it out. Well, <laughs>
3: this, is, this, this is something to add to your resume.
0: So, um, you know, They
3: used to have, you know, capable in, in in Fortran, you know, you could say capable with slide rule.
0: Um, so it, the other thing that y- that you said that I had not quite realized it sounded a little more uh, uh classified was that the attribution of the sony attack uh, uh came about because uh apart from all of the tools and techniques and uh, uh procedures that uh, uh the north koreans had used we were actually inside their network watching them launch attacks and so we knew uh, quite well that they had yeah, launched that not, not
3: in real time not in real time but they could go back through the files and yeah we we the NSA was so infiltrated into North Korea's networks and some other countries too they could go back into the files and the NSA hackers could actually see on their monitors what the North Korean hackers were seeing on their monitors when they hacked into Sony this was why, you know, shortly after the hack, the FBI said, we are highly confident that North Korea did this. They usually don't talk like that. Right. Or is there any incentive for them to talk about that? And you might remember that there were some computer experts at the beginning who were suspicious of this. They, they doubted, and the public rationale for this was, was a bit iffy, uh, but yeah, that's the real reason why they were so confident, is because it's like going back and looking at, at the film, you know, in a bank and seeing the people who who held up the teller, right? I and mean, it's all there. It was, you know, one hundred percent. No no question. And you know, uh they're they're also heavily into anytime say China hacks into a military network, a US military network and even some defense industries, uh they're being watched, and and there have been some cases where the Chinese uh, take what they think is a big secret about how to do some kind of technology, and it's turns it's actually a phony piece of evidence. It's a honeypot that's been planted. It's it's a phony blueprint, and it contains uh, a beacon that that can follow. Uh, the, the hacker back to where he came from,, so
0: one of the nice little uh, uh, vignettes uh, is Keith Alexander, the Director of NSA, trying to build uh, uh, support mm-hmm. for his uh, computer network uh, initiatives uh, uh, goes to all of the important civilian cyber uh, or uh, civilian uh, departments. And says to the secretary, uh, "Here's a memo you wrote last uh, uh, week. Um, we just stole it back from the Chinese." Uh, 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 telling yeah,
3: well, actually, that was that was Mike McConnell oh, was that when McConnell? he was director okay. of national so, intelligence.
0: So ah, he yeah. would go into
3: say that the secretary of treasury's office and say, "Here, here's a uh, here's a memo that you wrote last week. The Chinese hacked it from you, and we just hacked it from the Chinese." and and he'd been trying to get these uh people interested in in the idea that, that cybersecurity was an important issue and you know at the time and you know we're talking during the bush administration so not that long ago yeah it seemed like something very esoteric and obscure and this made them sit up in their chairs uh, so and and uh yeah that that's that's when high-level interest in this topic, uh, even outside the military, uh, sort of took off.
0: So let me do something a little unfair to to close this up. Uh, You interviewed all of these uh, uh, directors of NSA uh, uh, about Mm -hmm. what they did in this area, so you've got a sense of what they did right and wrong in the area. And so if I just went through mm-hmm. the names, could you give me a one-sentence uh, assessment <laughs> of their contribution to the field? Okay, let's start with Bobby Inman. All
3: right. Well, Bobby Ray Inman, you know, he was the first NSA director to realize that, that this was going to be a problem. And uh, now he was also Machiavell and started centralizing a lot of this technology Inside the NSA, and there's kind of an interesting very right. There was a brief period uh, when Ronald Reagan made him the uh, deputy director of the CIA, and so for a brief period he was both the director of the NSA and the deputy director of the CIA. And he wrote a lot of memos back and forth
0: <laughs> to himself, saying, "Take more responsibility." Oh yes, yes sir, in, I will. <laughs> yeah, at,
3: in which he uh, kind of created the rules by which the NSA and CIA would either divvy up or share certain technologies.
0: Okay, Bill Studeman.
3: Studeman uh, wrote a very important paper. Although this was, he was, he was a, he was a, an acolyte of, of uh, Inman's in the Navy Intelligence. He tried to get some things going inside the NSA, didn't quite, things were still a little premature, but afterwards he wrote a very important paper for a congressional panel called Are We Going Deaf?, <clears throat> which made the case that the, that the world was going digital and the NSA was still stuck in the world of, of radio signals and uh, telephone circuits, and that there would have to be a huge overhaul on the technology, and, and that had a big impact on the thinking of people who came subsequently.
0: Okay, third Navy Intel guy in a row, Mike McConnell.
3: Uh, McConnell had been in charge of, of a unit, of, of an intelligence unit inside the Joint Staff during the first Gulf War, saw the potential of these kinds of cyber attacks, uh, tried to bring them into the NSA. Now the interesting thing about McConnell, he comes into office, the Cold War is over. It just ended. <clears throat> the internet is about to be, to, you know, the World Wide Web is about to be created. He is wondering, well, oh, what is the point of this organization? What am I doing here? He goes to see a movie called Sneakers. Do you remember Sneakers?
0: I do, I do about remember this it. A of,
3: group of hackers, and there is one scene toward the end of the movie where this guy who used to be a recreational hacker and is now an evil genius played by Ben Kingsley, tells his old college roommate Robert Redford, he says, Marty, there's a war out there, there's a world war, but it's not about bullets and bombs, it's about information, it depends who has the most information, it's all about those zeros and ones. McConnell sits up in his chair, uh, he, tells his, he tells everybody to go see this movie, he gets the last reel, he screens it for his senior dr- executives, and he says, this is now our mission. And he takes one of the best people out in the field, brings them back to Fort Meade, creates something called the Director of Information Warfare. And suddenly, all over the military, there are these new centers for information warfare. And that's where uh, kind of cyber offensive tactics and strategies become systematized. At the same time, he's the key guy who, as you said at the beginning of this chat, uh, realized, oh my God, if we can do this to other people, they can do it to us, and then he became uh, quite engrossed uh, with, with the issue of cybersecurity, uh, which he continued when he became Director of National Intelligence inside Bush's White House.
0: Okay, um, Ken Minahan.
3: Minahan is probably, he is the, the most underwritten NSA director ever. Minahan had been... The director of something called the Air Force Information Warfare Center, which did some of the pioneering work in in intrusion detection, in in network interference, in in, in detecting attacks, in warning of attacks, he brings it to the NSA. He has a he 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 gets the Pentagon to agree to a cooperative but very secret war game, in which 25 elite hackers in the NSA hack into the entire Defense Department network. It was a game called Eligible Receiver in 1997, and they just hacked into everything in about two days. And that's what made everybody aware that this was a serious problem. So he was sort of the the instigator of, of everything to come.
0: So the last two have been Dernza together for longer than any two uh, human beings uh, uh-huh. uh, and had a surprisingly fraught relationship, which I didn't understand until you uh, wrote about it. Mike Hayden and Keith Alexander, what was their contribution to this?
3: Yeah. Well, Hayden succeeded Minahan as the director of Air Force Information Warfare Center and then succeeded him as NSA director. He was a much better manager and communicator than Minahan and took a lot of his programs and expanded them greatly, industrialized them. Uh, Hayden's big failure, though, was he realized that the whole system of, of intercepting communications had to change. It had to go out to to get digital packets instead of analog circuits and had to go into the networks to get the information he listened to his friends in the corporate world too much he allowed the corporations big corporations to come in and create new systems which were ill-designed overpriced uh, and, it, and it was a complete fiasco a waste of two billion dollars but at least it got things going in the right direction uh, Alexander was the one who came along. Alexander is actually the first NSA director who was a true computer geek, the first one to really understand the technology behind this. In fact, his assistants had to put more computers in his office so that he'd get off the floor dealing with all the other geeks and and do the job of an agenda setter. But he was the one who corrected Hayden's errors created a true digital interception network. Uh, And also, along with General McChrystal, Petraeus and others, created a cyber offensive program with special operation forces in the second Iraq war that that really had an an enormous impact on the war against insurgents by hacking into their computers, intercepting their code words, uh, their usernames, and sending false Messages like, you know, let's meet here tomorrow at four o'clock, and there would be either a drone or some special forces waiting for them and, and killing them, and also discombobulating their entire command chain. The the fight between Hayden and uh, and and uh, Alexander, both men of extraordinary egos and bureaucratic prowess, came when when Alexander had been head of, a, of an army intelligence unit and he aspired to make it a national unit and he made a big play to get access to raw NSA data so that he could do his own metadata analysis and that sort of thing and uh, uh, Hayden resented this quite deeply and uh, <clears throat> thought he was uh, a loose cannon and in fact uh, Hayden would refer to uh, to Alexander, is the Nike whoosh, because his, his slogan seemed to be, just do it. You know, forget about anything to do with propriety, legality, and so forth. So, uh yeah, they had a, a very fraught relationship.
0: All right. Well, that's a great uh uh tour of probably... 30 years of, uh, NSA cyber war <laughs> history, uh, and, uh, I know you've gotta go, uh, uh, this has been, it's a, it's a great book, it's a, uh, lively, interesting, the story of what was done in the Iraq surge, uh, uh, is one that, uh, I'm sure somebody's gonna write an entire book on that, uh, uh because you clearly indicate that that had a big role in the success of the search, Uh, um, eh, but that's just one of a dozen stories here that uh, make uh, cyber war um I won't say friendly but at least approachable and understandable uh uh so Fred thank you so much for this book I uh, I really enjoyed it and uh I look forward to your next one
3: Okay thanks very much
0: All right do you have any uh, events you uh, coming up you want to uh, tell our uh, listeners about that uh, you'll be at I mean
3: you know I I had a bunch of events a few but no not not anything uh in the coming uh, couple of weeks no all right. but, but thanks, for, You could mention the title of the book again. I, I
0: will be glad to, to do this. Dark Territory: yeah. The Secret okay. History of Cyber War. Okay, well, we're glad we could do this. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you, Fred. All right. Well, I am. I am back uh, from uh, uh, hiking across Spain. You'll be pleased to hear that. Uh, uh, I took my, a son and a grandson and brought them back in one piece, a uh, uh, beautiful country in the Sierra Nevada of Spain, uh, uh, the last part of Spain to be conquered uh, back from the Moors uh, uh, in 1492, which uh, uh, we, we spent a little time doing uh, history, and uh, I uh, persuaded my grandson that uh, 1492. If you'd asked people in that year what history-making event occurred, they wouldn't have picked Columbus. They would have picked the Reconquista of uh, uh, the uh, uh, the last uh, Moorish uh, kingdom in uh, uh, in Spain. Um, eh, but a great, uh, great holiday, and it's great to be back. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, so um, thanks to. Uh, Fred Kaplan, thanks to Maury Shank. thanks to Michael Vattis. As always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, we are still trying to collect uh, um, views on whether we ought to – invest in CLE credit for the uh, podcast. It's uh, going to require a fair amount of bureaucracy and publication of materials and the like, so we'd like to see a substantial um, uh, interest. We've gotten uh, at least one vote uh, for California, but... Uh, I have to say, if we don't hear more than uh, a few votes for a few jurisdictions, we probably aren't going to do it. Um, uh, so if you're thinking uh, it's going to happen without you sending uh, uh, email to uh, cyberlawpodcast.stepto.com, uh again. Uh, uh, this has been Episode 122 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, in the future as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.